for Christmas. I trust you've all had a good time. I know one or two people have uh, had the um, whatever, but um, <laughs> as we have, but I trust you've had a good Christmas. And we're back again in the uh, letter of James. So if you'd like to turn to James in your Bible. Um, some of the quotes I've got this morning will be from the ESV, but, um, and some from the, from the NIV. So uh, as it is these days, we have uh, different versions. But uh, just by uh, way of introduction, uh, we've been studying the letter of James for a few weeks and it's going to carry on for a few weeks longer. And you'll remember that um, uh, this James is considered to be the half-brother of Jesus and he's writing to Christians, people who are saved, people who know the Lord, people who are believers and it's about practical Christian living practical Christian living, how you apply the gospel uh, in everyday situations. Now, of course, there were particular situations that he addresses, but I trust that we will find a relevance to those as we look at at one of them this morning. And um, I hope also, in some small measure, uh, you will have, again, a great appreciation that the gospel can achieve things that nothing else can. Uh, And in this in particular... It's, it can produce true unity between peoples who are poles apart in the social and the economic divide that is prevalent in most societies today. So we'll read the passage, and it's um, just a few verses, chapter 1, verse 9 through to 11. And perhaps not the easiest of, uh, of verses to, to understand, but I hope that we'll... God will help us to have some revelation in it this morning. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, that is his lifting up, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also the rich will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay. So just a little bit of background to help us to maybe understand where James is coming from here, in p- partly in a cultural thing, but partly something that um, would apply to us and anyone around the world. Uh, ever since the fall, ever since uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, I think every expression uh, of humanity in the world has had its rich and it's poor. And uh, the reasons for being in one state or another are many and varied. But let's think about the poor. Regarding the poor, many are born into poor families and communities. Unless they receive some external help, that is they are given education or perhaps they're given employment with advancement, uh, then there's little hope of them improving their lot. Even worse, we know that certain races have been considered inferior by the rest of their society. So they start in an inferior position according to the rest of their society, such as uh, black people in the USA and South Africa, and of course um, the Jews in Nazi-dominated Europe. These people start off at a disadvantage according to their community. And then in India we have the untouchables, uh, those who 
um, traditionally occupied the lowest place uh, in the um, caste system, the Hindu caste system. And uh, they were called untouchables because they were considered impure because of the work that they did, which was generally clearing up human waste. And they really had very little rights at all. There have been some changes since, but I think still the caste system applies to many people. And uh, they don't have any real any chance uh, of advancement. Um, in, in general, um, poor people are powerless. They don't have choices. They don't are able to make choices in life. The UK is rated as the world's sixth largest economy. Uh, but in spite of this, and in spite of the fact that we have an advanced welfare system, it's claimed that one in five people in the UK live below the official poverty line. One in five, that's an awful lot, isn't it? And um, for the rich, uh, no matter how their wealth was gained, they have power to make choices, and they also have power uh, to exploit the poor to their advantage. I often ask myself the question, how often are we, uh, when we buy goods from third world countries, um, uh, benefiting from e the exploitation of others? If you're like me, you'll be amazed how cheap some goods are in the shops, particularly in budget outlets. And uh, I have a suspicion that um, there are overseas communities that are being exploited for my benefit just so I can have cheap clothes. Why should I necessarily need cheap clothes at their expense? A few years ago, there was an outcry against the, the Nike company. Do you remember that? Um, they produced trainers and other shoes and, and sports goods and so on for the Western market, mostly made in third world countries. There's a news item and it goes like this. In 2005, Nike, long the subject of of sweatshop allegations, yesterday produced the most comprehensive picture yet of the 700 factories that produce its footwear and clothing, detailing admissions of abuses, including forced overtime and restricted access to water. The company has published a 108-page report available on its website, the first since it paid the $1.5 million to settle allegations that it had made false claims about how well its workers were treated. And we could go on, of course. Now, I'm only telling you this, or only mentioning this, to give an illustration that it's very easy for the rich to exploit the poor and for the poor to be resigned to their helpless state and see themselves as worthless. Well, how does God feel about this? I think we know, don't we? The Bible tells us that God hates it. He hates this, and he is reserved his fiercest judgments for those who disregard the poor. He's principally made this known um, through the gospel and through the Jewish law. And um, in it's interesting that nowhere in the Bible is it suggested that the poor will no longer exist one day apart from in God's glorious kingdom. And um, purely on a practical level, this is a bit akin to Jesus' parable really, but if we took... 10 people and we gave them each say a hundred pounds and we said now go away come back in three months and see what you've done with your money um, we know that some would come back having spent it in the first week 
others would come back having multiplied it. So even if people start off with um, equal wealth, um, it, it qu quickly uh, gets into the point where you have the rich and the poor. And Jesus himself said, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. He's accepting the fact that in this life, there will be people that are poor, but he's saying we must not disregard them. You can do good for them. The Jewish law made provision for the poor and the alien um, and to make sure that they were cared for and treated with justice and protected from exploitation by the rich and the powerful. But throughout Israel's history, they failed to observe this principle. And most of the prophets who spoke on God's behalf to the people um, were scathing in their wor words uh, against those who exploited uh, the poor. And here are just a few examples. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard and plunder the, from the poor in your... Uh, and the plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. That's Isaiah 3 and then Isaiah 10. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. And then Ezekiel. The people of the land practiced extortion, and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy and ill-treat the foreigner, denying them justice. So in practice, in practice, the law was little protection for the poor. But has the gospel done anything different? Has it offered any different, anything different? Uh, and if so, how does it work? Well, um, early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, we know that um, with his disciples he went to Nazareth uh, where he was brought up and it was the Sabbath day so he went into the synagogue and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and um, he read from where um, he was given. It was given to him and then he applied it to himself and he says this and we know this as Isaiah 61 the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And this is Jesus' manifesto. This is, the, as it were, the opening up of the gospel that he's going to be preaching, which will then be preached on uh, by the apostles. Who are the people that are mentioned first? It's the poor. So it is, the gospel is meant to be good news uh, to the poor. And uh, we say, well, did it work? Does it work like that? Well, it did, certainly did um, in the first few days of the church, and we trust it went on doing so. And uh, a few days after the, um, the day of Pentecost, we read this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't believe this resulted in an equal distribution of wealth to everyone, but it did mean that the poor were cared for and they had justice. Now one might disregard this um, incident as a kind of an expression of euphoria um, for being part of an exciting and new community, but we would be wrong because in the gospel there is a spiritual transformation that does remove the barriers between peoples, whatever categories that we want to, to cite. Paul explained the theology of this in his letter to the Ephesian church. And of course, theology just means the knowledge of God. And it also means how God sees things. And um, Paul writes to the Ephesian church. And the Ephesians, of course, were Gentiles. And we I'm sure we know that there was great animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews saw themselves as very superior. They were God's chosen people. They had the prophets, they had the scriptures, they had the promises, and the Gentiles had none of this. And the Jews would often call the Gentiles dogs uh, and would not allow them into their homes because it would pollute them. Now, Paul is talking to the Ephesians and listen to the wonderful things that he tells them. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us, so have made both us, sorry, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility so the gospel kills the hostility where there is hostility between groups of people he's saying he's not saying that 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 the Gentiles now become Jews so they can inherit all the promises no he's saying that the Jews and the Gentiles are now merged into a new people through the cross of Christ through Christ they become one people in God, a new man, he says, and then they will all inherit the promises of God in Christ. Paul says to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that these obvious differences between men and women, for example, has been rubbed out. What he's saying is that God sees them of equal value. Each one are of equal value. Each are of equal value in Christ Jesus. Well, at last we've got to the text. That's a little bit of the background, but we get come to the text now in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Well, what's Paul getting at here? Well, one, it's one thing to have knowledge that in the gospel we are all one. We are all equal in God's sight. 
but it's another thing to rid ourselves of uh, ways of thinking and behaving. And James accepts that in the church there will be people from poor and humble backgrounds as well as the rich and influential. And naturally there could still be, in spite of the fact there's been that transformation in Christ, there could still be uh, some animosity or, or, or differences between them. And the answer is the gospel for both groups. Both must see their lives from a he- heavenly perspective and must see themselves as God sees them and has made them in Christ. What both groups should boast in, he talks about boasting, what both groups should boast in or take pride in is their status in Christ, the place, uh, their place in God's kingdom, which is completely independent of worldly status. The answer lies in the gospel for both groups, but the approach is different. Both have to overcome wrong thinking and wrong attitudes, but they are different. If you like, the poor have to look up uh, and and to see where God has taken them, and the rich have to look back and see how they got there. How did they they become um, Christians? How did they become believers? The poor have to overcome their sense of unworthiness, The rich have to overcome their pride and and dependence on their riches. Both of these factors can be blocks to salvation uh, and can be the source of strained relationships. The poor, for instance, who have been sidelined, who have have always been neglected and pushed to the margins of their society, um, they may well feel that why should God accept me? If nobody else accepts me, I'm worthless. Why should God want me? And the rich who have always been self-sufficient and able to make their money work for them, can't believe that God would not accept something that they've achieved as part of their salvation. So both of these can be blocks. The poor have to see that God has raised them, exalted them in Christ, and the rich have to see and remind themselves that the gospel is humiliating to the rich. This is what he's saying, that they are, they are to... Um, uh, boast in their humiliation. It's humiliating to the rich and powerful. It's true that all who who want to be saved, both poor and rich, have to humble themselves um, before God and acknowledge that they bring nothing to their salvation except their sin and that they are justified, they are made right with God um, purely through the... um, on the grounds of faith in the finished work of Christ. Let's just for a moment look at more closely at both these two groups. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, that is, his lifting up. This is not the arrogant boasting of self-importance, but the joyous pride of what God has accomplished in them uh, through Christ. Once they were at the bottom of the pile with no hope of advancement, They were taken advantage of. They were robbed of dignity by their society. Now in Christ they are adopted as sons and daughters of God. They are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, citizens of heaven. And um, as Peter says, they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And James says in chapter 2 and verse 5, Listen, my brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Neither Jesus nor James excludes the rich 
from the kingdom of God. James does not say it's only the poor who are chosen, but he does make the point that the poor are chosen. Uh, They wouldn't expect to be chosen, but he's making the point that they are chosen. Many of them are chosen. James wants the poor to enjoy their exalted position now and their hope of participation in God's glorious kingdom to come. It won't be easy for them uh, because in worldly terms of wealth and status they may still be greatly disadvantaged but they need to rejoice that they are a new creation, a member of the new race that God has created and try not to be intimidated by the rich who have no additional status with God and are members of the same race. They both have to come the same way. There is a new race, a new tribe. uh, It's called believers. Um, Some years ago, uh, John Peepy, who has an apostolic ministry in Ghana, part of the New Frontiers family, um, he was so aware of how um, uh, tribal and... uh, um, allegiances uh, were affecting the church people had more allegiance to their tribe than they did to the church and he wrote a book called God's New Tribe making the point that God has created this one new man as Paul said to the Ephesians and that that is their primary identity whatever your nationality your primary identity if you're a Christian is that you're a believer you are in Christ So I'm an Englishman, well I'm a believer who happens to be an Englishman. You may be some other nationality, but that is now our primary identity. Then the rich, they are to boast in their humiliation. Interestingly, James has more to say to the rich than the poor, as the prophets of old did. And he has a a real go at them in chapter 5. You might like to look at that. I can hardly believe he's talking to Christians here. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Uh, He does not resist you. As I say, it's amazing he's talking to Christians. Jesus, in his parable of the sower, as we know, um, talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, He's using the comparison of the weeds that grow up alongside the wheat. And he said, it's the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word of God. Riches are deceitful uh, because they promise fulfilment and happiness and rarely deliver either and uh, for those who have been rich for a long time it must be difficult to get out of the the thinking that they can achieve anything with their money and their influence in some ways that may be so for a while uh, but wealth and status 
will one day pass away, as James says. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Jesus also talks, um, got told parables about money, lots of them about money really, told parables about not storing up treasure on earth, but about storing up treasure in heaven where, it can't, where moth and rust um, can't eat it away. And he also said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And uh, he also told those who might be bigging, uh, building bigger barns in order to store uh, their produce and their wealth. He said, you're a fool because this night your soul may re- be required of you. So that activity may keep them uh, from salvation. However, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it is wrong to be rich. But our attitude to it may be wrong, to, to riches. There, there are those who clearly use their money for good causes. There are those who are, as it were, a, a source of, as a, as a river to people, um, to the poor, to funding missions and so on. And um, I believe God blesses those people often with more wealth so that they can still be uh, a, a source of, of a river uh, to people, supplying the needs of others. Um, and they do a lot of good with it. So what is James' remedy for those who might be ensnared by wealth and proud of their worldly status? He says they are to boast in their humiliation. What is their humiliation? What's the humiliation of the rich? Well, um, this is my, my interpretation of it. Someone who's gained their wealth, worldly wealth through hard work and enterprise might very well be proud of their achievements, and that's understandable. But what the rich Christian is to do is to boast in Christ's achievements and to constantly remember that before they were saved, they were lost, they were lost, they were blind, and they were dead. Paul says they were dead in trespasses and sins, as all are. All of us were in that state. But this is particularly um, pointed to the rich. And that they are now, as a Christian, they're entirely the product of God's mercy and grace. And in spite of their wealth and status, in their conversation and in their lifestyle, they are to have the same attitude as Jesus, who was rich beyond compare, but who humbled himself in the extreme. So it's, it's in their lifestyle, it's in the way they speak, that they're not now relying on their wealth and their status and their influence, but they are now uh, considering themselves in their humble state, and in becoming a Christian. This is what Paul says to the Philippians, which will be very familiar to you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death, even death on a cross. Part of their humiliation is their identification with the sufferings of Christ. Sufferings 
that sometimes they might have well avoided with their wealth and with their influence. They are to remember that advancement in the kingdom of God is through serving and humility, not by using their influence, not by using their money or lording it over people. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I can only assume that James considers that humbling themselves is one of the most difficult things for people who have been wealthy and influential in their society. But he's calling them to do that, to remember what they were before they were saved. What they were before they were saved. Well, how do we, how do we apply this to ourselves then? Just by way of conclusion. The fact is that whether we consider ourselves rich, I won't ask you to put your hand up, or whether you consider yourself poor, or somewhere in the middle, um, we each one of us have to see ourselves as God sees us. We need to see ourselves as from heaven's perspective. Let me ask you this. Do you have a tendency to put yourself down? Have you a low opinion of yourself? We often call it low self-esteem, don't we? Maybe because in your life, sadly, you've experienced a lot of rejection. James says you should boast, you should take pride in, you should rejoice in your exaltation. That just means being lifted up. You're, you are now lifted up to the highest place. You've been raised with Christ to sit with him in heavenly places. Right? There's no higher place than to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are loved by God. You are God's treasured possession. You are a child of the King. That may be hard, but that's what James tells us to do, that we are to boast in our exhortation. We are to glory in our exhortation. We are to take pride in the fact that God has lifted us from the lowest place to the highest place. Maybe you're someone that's always been self-sufficient, successful at most things, able to fix whatever goes wrong and proud of your achievements. That could be me, sometimes. <laughs> then James says you should boast in your humiliation. You are to remember that any confidence that you might have had that who you were and what you'd achieved um, could in some ways get you to heaven, that, that God would at least consider something that, that would contribute to your salvation. That, that has to be replaced by total confidence in God's grace and mercy and in the finished work of Christ. That has to be totally replaced. Paul says to the Galatian church, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If you know Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, you know that Paul lists his pedigree. And it's very impressive. As a Jew, he was very impressive. Um, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, 
and so on, as a, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Um, he got it all right, and he was very proud of that. But having met with Jesus, he said, I consider that all rubbish, absolute rubbish, compared with the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So whether you're rich or you're poor, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer to bring people together. That's why I've called this um, uh, message um, that we have a culture-defying gospel. But we have to work at it. Right? It's, it's not good just to say, well, this is the theology and this is what God says I am, that we need to be able to think that way. And, and, and James is giving us some idea how we might apply that to him. We're going to sing a song and then I'll close in prayer. Thank you.